Hi, I'm Amira Khalid, and I'm the creator and host of Inspiring UA Women, the one and only podcast focused on female leaders in the United Arab Emirates. In my show, Inspiring UA Women, I will be interviewing and shining the spotlight on a diverse group of female leaders in the UAE and hopefully inspire women in the region with their success stories. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you enjoy listening to my podcast. And if you do, please subscribe and leave your comments and ratings on iTunes. You can also follow the show on social media and get in touch with me. Details will be in the episode description. My guest today is Mary Justine Todd. She is the founder and executive director of Shamsaha, the winner of Ingrid Vandervelde's Empowering a Billion Women 2020 Most Innovative App Award as the creator of Shamsaha Mobile App to scale the humanitarian services in Bahrain, making 24-7 multilingual and culturally sensitive crisis support service available to millions of women for the first time ever throughout the Middle East. Thank you so much for being on my show, Mary Justine. It is an absolute pleasure to have you. Mary Justine, tell us about your background. I'm from Iowa. It's a small rural state in the United States. I grew up on the Mississippi River. I left Iowa when I finished graduate school, went to New York City. From New York, I spent, after that, I spent about 10 years going back and forth between um, New York and Sub-Saharan Africa, working in different refugee camps. And then in about 2014, I came to Bahrain, and I've been here ever since. Mary Justine, what inspired you to build Shamsaha? Oh, lots of things. Personal experiences with um, violence in the past, knowledge that when women go through domestic violence or sexual violence, it can be sometimes the worst days of their life, you know, and the only thing worse, I think, than maybe experiencing uh, some trauma like that is going through it alone. And um, I know that I've been there. And so I realized after coming to Bahrain that they didn't have a women's crisis advocacy program for victims of abuse. So I thought I knew how to do it and I could set it up. And that's basically how it started. When I first moved to New York, when I finished my first master's, I was just looking for some like volunteer work. And I came across this program called Dove, Domestic and Other Violent Emergencies at Columbia University Hospitals. I'd never heard of a crisis program before. I signed up and I first became a volunteer. And then over the years, I eventually became the president of the advisory board. And so that's how I specifically learned like the ins and outs of advocacy. When I was in college, I was sexually assaulted and I went to the hospital. And I remember two things from that day. One of them was the nurse asking me if I'd been drinking. Um, knowing automatically that if the answer was yes, then this was my fault, right? Of course. Um, and the second one is there was like another girl in the room, like a young girl. I didn't know who she was. She was like, seemed to be sort of part of the hospital. Like she had an official role, um, but all that she did was be with me. She was there and she was nice to me. So I, ha- I have two memories. I have one memory of somebody blaming me for what happened. And I have another memory of a young girl with long brown hair, straight brown hair, who was nice to me. She was in the room with me the whole time. And it wasn't until like maybe those 10 years later that I was in New York and I signed up with Dove to be a volunteer to become an advocate that I realized all those years later that that girl from the hospital back in Iowa was in fact a crisis advocate as well. 
Mary Justine, this next question might be a hard one because I can't possibly imagine the extent of it. But what were some of the main challenges you had to face while setting up Shamsaha? And the first and most obvious answer is money, because if you have a million dollars, you can do a lot of things easily, right? And we started with like zero dollars. But I think the second and a little bit more nuanced challenge was I had expected ideological challenges. Like I had expected people to oppose what I was doing. And that actually wasn't the case. We had lots and lots of support from Bahraini men and women, from officials, from government, from other civil society organizations. That wasn't the problem. But what I didn't realize is that I was creating a gigantic 24 hour a day, huge moving machine with more than 130 volunteers and thousands of clients every year. You know, our budget has gotten upwards of $600,000 a year. It's this massive company essentially now. And with that comes all the challenges of running any company. The only difference is our beneficiaries, they don't pay. I didn't go to business school, you know, but I'm running a huge business. And so I'm personally having to figure out a lot of this stuff along the way. My next question is, why are organizations such as Shamsaha necessary? Well, because one in three women in the world will experience abuse in their lifetime. And if you can't off the top of your head think of somebody you know who's experienced abuse, it's because they didn't tell you. Most people don't want to tell anybody. They don't want people to know it's embarrassing. You know, fair enough, it is embarrassing, right or wrong. But it's important because Bahrain and the GCC, it's not different than anywhere else. It just is a place in this world and sexual and domestic violence exists in this world. It's important here just as it is important anywhere else. The only thing was we didn't have it here until now. We didn't have this service until now. Mary Justine, I hear you're planning on expanding in the UAE as well. Tell us more about it. And are you also able to share information on your new plans with L'Oreal? Inshallah, inshallah, yes. So um, we're so grateful. L'Oreal, um, L'Oreal Fund for Women has been so supportive and they're just really, really cool people all around and super generous, obviously. Um, so they've given us a large-scale two-year grant to take our services in Bahrain and scale them throughout the GCC. So we plan to expand into Kuwait, um, Oman, Saudi, and uh, Emirates. Hopefully, that's the plan. Of course, we have to get operational partners in each country in order to get it off the ground. Um, but there are some really fantastic organizations already working in all of these countries, such as the Dubai Foundation for Women, for example. We're just in the beginning of the process of expansion, but what we're going to be doing is just finding strategic operational partners, um, going to them and we say, hey, this is who we are, this is what we're doing. You know, you're doing something similar, let's complement each other's work. Mary Justine, how prevalent is violence against women in the region? Why is this still such a taboo topic? And why don't we talk about it more? Well, we don't talk about it because it makes people uncomfortable. It makes women and men uncomfortable. Something like breast cancer, for example, this was a really taboo topic up to even just like 15 years ago. People for a really long time were also really embarrassed to talk about that. But the difference between breast cancer and domestic violence is that in domestic violence situations, there is inevitably somebody to blame, right? There is a perpetrator who has done something wrong. And so a lot of men can sometimes feel defensive. It's totally unnecessary. There should be no fear in talking about it. You know, this is an issue that affects women, families, communities, your friends, your sisters, you know, it affects everybody. So if we can just get past the sort of fear, then I think we'll be able to talk about it more. 
The World Health Organization estimates that in the Eastern Mediterranean region, which includes the GCC, the same prevalence exists, which is about one in three women will experience domestic violence. Rates of sexual violence in this region are not measured, however, but we can extrapolate from public health data that it's somewhere in the same ballpark. Um, there's a bit of difference between, for example, like in the United States, I think it's around 34%. In the GCC, um, I think it's a little bit higher, around 37 In Finland, it's like 29 like it's a little bit lower, but it all hovers right around the same area. And I think something that we really, really don't talk about is a lot of time it's misinterpretation of Islam. There is a lot of really well-meaning, loving people that believe that in the Quran, verse 434, is justification to hit a woman, even though it's some people may say, oh, but it's only with a small stick or, you know, it's not meant to hurt or cause any scars or anything like that. But there's also a lot of um, Islamic scholarship out there that shows that, in fact, that is a fully wrong interpretation of the verb daraba. Because if you look at other common uses of daraba or other uses of that word throughout the Quran, it in fact does not mean to hit at all. It means to go away. Maybe you're familiar with, and I won't say it correctly to so all the Arabic speakers out there, please forgive me. But art means to go far away, to travel around the world, right? And so I think this is a reflection of culture, not of religion, right? But when culture and religion is intertwined, they can often be confused for one and of the same thing, whereas they are not. And patriarchal culture exists all over the world. It exists in my country. It exists in, in Bahrain. It exists you know, in Europe. And so when patriarchal culture uses religion for their own purposes, then it can be really, really dangerous. And so I think this is something that we that really we don't talk about but it's important to remember you know islam is a loving and compassionate uh, religion right compassion and mercy in compassion and mercy there's nothing to do with hitting there's nothing to do with beating your wife i think that's one of the challenges that we face here that we don't have in, in other countries but of course other countries have different challenges why is there a lack of legislation and what would be required to make the justice system more widely accessible to victims so at Chamsaha, we are an apolitical organization. We don't get involved in politics because uh, we are simply a humanitarian organization. I speak only anecdotally, um, not officially in any capacity, is that I think legislation just slowly follows cultural shifts in thinking, and we're just sort of in the middle of that process now. Mary Justine, do you have any thoughts about what media can do to make their coverage more survivor-centered? Let's start with what is media's role in perpetuating violence against women? The sexualization and the objectification of women in the media is profound and it has a huge impact on the way we think about women and the way society thinks they have a right to treat women, right? When women are objectified and sexualized over and over and over again on TV, then we think it's okay to do it in real life as well. The same thing is true for then how we treat victims of abuse, um, how we treat women in TV shows or movies or, or whatever. When and they've been abused, it's, they're, they're blamed for it. You know, they're always blamed for it. I'll tell you a story. So I'm currently doing my PhD in international law. I'm looking at the connections, the interconnections between violence against women and violence against animals using an eco-feminist theoretical framework. And so I have three advisors, but one of them, um, and I was telling him about something that had happened to me on the streets of Istanbul a couple of years ago. And we're talking about a really, really high level scholar, you know, very, very well-educated, very modern, you know, that's an English university. And I told him the story of what happened to me and literally the very first thing out of his mouth was what were you wearing and I was like well like normal clothes but that's not the point 
you know, it's just so deeply ingrained in our society that if something's happened, she probably caused it. But I ask you, can you name any other crime where the victim automatically becomes the accused? If your card gets stolen, are, you, are someone going to ask you, well, where did you leave it? No, it's, it's the only crime that, that this happens. And so, like you said, the media plays a really huge role, an outsized role, in fact, and especially now with social media at our fingertips, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there needs to be not only a conscious attempt by, by producers um, in the media to, to choose to do things differently, we need consumers also to choose politically and choose the media that they are consuming and choose not to consume the offensive media. What is your opinion about the women's rights movement bringing public attention to gender-based violence? All good, all good. I will say, in sort of a more theoretical, abstract kind of way, the concept of women's rights, although it's very, very important, rights in and of itself come from a patriarchal philosophical background. The concept of rights is very male and masculine centered. So I think in addition to rights, what we need to talk about among women and among communities is compassion right? To care, care for each other. So care for women, rights for women, yes, but care for women. What can we do as a society to discourage domestic and sexual violence? To talk about it, you know, not shame people who've gone through it, to acknowledge that, you know, the family's reputation has not been tarnished because of something that a girl did when in fact it was done to a girl. We need to shame the perpetrators, not the victims. Um, I think it comes down to even little small things like resisting gender roles that are superimposed from society. Like, so for example, my husband, who is like a huge uber liberal feminist, right? But also a strict practicing Muslim. He's from Sudan. And um, all of his family, they're all wonderful. They're all great. But when he goes home to Sudan, it is his sisters and his sisters only that cook and clean all day long. And his like five brothers sit in the living room watching TV. And when we go together to visit Sudan, my husband walks right in alongside me as per my insistence and helps with the dishes and helps carry the food because it's not an insignificant reflection of power in society. Now, gender roles, sometimes they're fine. You have your job, I have my job. Maybe you've been out at work all day, so I'm happy to clean the house, you know? But sometimes we have to resist the gender roles and go against the grain, you know, stick your neck out a little bit. Don't accept the sexist joke that your uncle tells at the, around the dinner table. Call him out, tell him it's not okay. It's not okay to talk about people like that. Mary Justine, education is a long-term solution, but how do we deal with the problem in the short term? Sure. So it's a complicated question because the answer is one that people, it's not intuitive for people. So if you have a friend or family who um, just tells you that something has happened to them, the most common and totally understandable natural reaction to them is to give them advice, to tell them what to do, to say, oh my God, you should go to the police, you should go to the hospital, you should do this, tell your family. Okay. And that's all well and good. And it certainly comes from a good place. But in the end, what we need to do in these circumstances is not give advice actually. Now, giving information may be one thing. You could say, well, maybe let's talk about what you could do at this point. Do you want to go to the police? Do you want to go to the hospital? Do you want to tell, let's say, your manager or something if it happened at work or something? But when we tell victims what they should do, what we've in fact done is the same thing that the perpetrator does, is we've tried to take their power away. So what we try to do at Shamsaha is and what, what any member of the general public can do, man or woman, if they come to know about somebody who needs help, is don't give them advice. 
Give them information, definitely, but listen to them. Acknowledge their decision-making authority over themselves. Acknowledge their abilities and their and their rights to decide for themselves. If they don't want to go to the police and they don't want to tell anybody, fine. They have their reason. Respect that. Now, you may want to say to them following that, I understand that's fine, but I'm concerned about your safety. Maybe you can talk about a way to stay safe. The trauma of assault can mean taking time off and lost wages. Is there any support offered to victims in the short term to help them deal financially? The global cost of violence against women is shockingly high. And uh, I often get asked about that number. Well, how could it possibly be so high? And the answer is there's four types of, of different costs. So one is direct tangible costs, which are the actual expenses paid, representing real money that's spent like taxi fare and hospital bills and things like that. Then there's the indirect tangible costs, which have monetary value in the economy, but are based on a loss of potential. For example, lower earnings or lower profit from reduced product activity at work. Then there's direct intangible, which results directly from the violence, but don't have monetary value. For example, the pain and suffering that somebody goes through. And then the fourth category is indirect intangible costs, which is indirectly related to the violence, but has no monetary value. For example, the negative psychological effects on the children. And so what economists can do is they can put an estimate dollar value on this amount. This is a huge draw from our global economy, all because of violence against women. But on a micro level, women can lose their jobs, you know, if they have to call in sick to work, you know, women aren't, they're not being productive. Um, oftentimes women aren't even able to have jobs because they live in such an unstable um, or controlling household. Um, and in this case, at Shamsaha, what we try to do is just empower them to know what their options are. And then we do, you know, real practical, tangible things like help them build resumes and help them do job searches and interviews and things like that. And then we also have our economic empowerment program that's sponsored by the National Bank of Bahrain, in which we are giving women like small skills, like handicraft skills, and then also things like accounting for small businesses and small business management and um, like social media for marketing and things like that. So they can start to sell their products so they can start to earn an income sometimes for the very first time ever. Mary Justine, my last question is, as a female leader, what advice you would offer other women? In general, advice that I would give women is that when they decide they want to do something, take the steps necessary to do it well. Even if that means, you know, stepping back for like a two-year degree program or whatever it is, but go through the necessary preparatory processes to do what you want to do properly and well. Take time to do it well and don't take shortcuts. Whatever it is you have on your mind, go for it. But just go for it in a sort of official, proper way, you know, um, because that way you'll actually do a really good job at it. Thank you so much for this wonderful interview, Mary Justine. It was a pleasure having you on my show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Inspiring UA Women podcast. Violence starts early in the lives of women. Not enough is done to prevent violence, and when it does occur, it often goes unpunished. Only 40% of women seek help of any sort after experiencing violence. More than 6 in every 10 women survivors of violence refrain from asking for support or protection of any kind. The remaining ones who do speak up turn to family and friends for support and or protection. 
a 2018 analysis of prevalence data from 2000 to 2018 across 161 countries and areas conducted by the World Health Organization on behalf of the UN Interagency Working Group on Violence Against Women, found that globally nearly one in three or 30% of women have been subjected to physical and or sexual violence by an intimate partner or non-partner sexual violence or both. The same study also found that almost one in four ever married or partnered adolescent girls in the youngest age cohort, which is 15 to 19 years old, is estimated to have already been subjected to physical and or sexual violence from an intimate partner at least once in their lifetime. According to UN Women, in some countries, the rate of violence against women is as high as 70%. Also, 700 million women alive today have been married under the age of 18. According to another study by the World Bank in 2020, at least 155 countries have passed laws on domestic violence and 140 have legislation on sexual harassment in the workplace. Yet challenges remain in enforcing these laws, limiting women and girls' access to safety and justice. Estimates before the COVID-19 pandemic indicated that gender-based violence can cost up to 3.7% of GDP in some countries, which is more than double the amount that many governments spend on education. Keeping these statistics in mind, it is imperative that we do more as human beings and as a society. Organizations such as Shamsaha are vital and it is critical that they receive our full support both financially and morally. With that, I'll see you all in the next episode.